This podcast is brought to you by the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. With the $2.2 trillion relief plan through the Senate and on its way to the House, many questions will be asked about how this will impact the U.S. economy. Obviously, it provides a benefit in the short and medium term for businesses of all sizes. It will also provide support to workers with longer UE benefits if they lose their job. But what does it do to something like income inequality? It has been a topic that has been discussed in this country maybe not moved on as much as it probably should, but has been discussed for the last couple of years. Ben Lockwood is an assistant professor of business economics and public policy here at the Wharton School, and he joins us on the phone right now. Ben, great to catch up with you again. Hi there, Dan. Great to talk to you. Thank you. So take us into the the concern and the want to focus on something like income inequality in this time with, with all of these elements at play. Yeah, thanks. So I'm glad you mentioned in, uh, income inequality, because I think that's actually pretty important to think about here for a couple of reasons. Um, I mean, first, in the short run, it's extremely important because this shock is just hitting p- different people very differently across the economy. Um, even at the the height of this last economic expansion, which has been pretty broad and pretty long lasting, you know, this was the longest expansion in, in U.S. history since the Great Recession. Uh, but even at the height of that, around 40 percent of Americans still said they would have trouble meeting just a four hundred dollar expense that they would have to miss some bill or, or sell something that they own or something to meet an expense like that. Um, So I think one thing that that highlights is that we were already starting, despite some pretty good looking high level numbers, we were already starting from sort of a place of some financial fragility, at least for a substantial share of of the U.S. population. Uh, And then you can just imagine what that means for that share of the population if you happen to get sick and you have to miss a shift or two or if you're unexpectedly laid off because the restaurant you work at can't make ends meet or or what have you. for, for workers in that sort of situation, they're extremely vulnerable. Um, and so we, despite sort of how good things looked at the outset, we, uh, we were actually still pretty fragile in the face of something like this. So how do you think then something like income inequality could potentially have been addressed even uh, uh, on a small measure with the bill that, uh, that is working its way through Capitol Hill right now? Yeah, this is also a really good question. So, um, so I think it's helpful to think of government policy both in the in the short run and in the long run for for dealing with this kind of fragility. Um, when we're thinking in the short run, you know, I, I mentioned the the fragility of these uh, the, the kind of bottom forty percent or so of the the income distribution. Um, that's pretty important in the short run, both because once you have people who are potentially laid off, uh, if they don't have the means to kind of make it through this stretch, they themselves might end up in, in really dire financial straits if they can't pay their rent, if they can't get medicines that they need, if they if they can't afford food and so on. Um, and it also means that the, the the rest of society is actually pretty exposed as well. If somebody doesn't, if somebody feels like they need to continue working even if they don't feel well, uh, then that exposes all the colleagues that they work with, all of the people that they uh, that they interact with in their in their job, the clients that they interact with, or the the people buying food or or whatever. Um, and you know, this is another aspect where going into this crisis. I just want to highlight how, how, uh, for instance, at the bottom of the income distribution in the, in the bottom 10%, less than a third of people had paid sick leave of any sort to begin with, 
which creates that sort of economic need to feel like you need to, to potentially go to work even if you're not feeling well. Um, so, uh, so even in the very short run, I think that these that the kinds of government policies that are being considered and some of the, the policies that were included in this stimulus package have a really beneficial role to play in providing people enough financial support to make it through if they happen to be laid off, to provide businesses support to keep payroll intact, even as their revenues crash, uh, and to provide just some direct financial support through you know, some some really pretty creative uh, new policies like just sending out cash income grants directly to people, even if, uh, you know, regardless of their of their situation. Um, Those kinds of things can be really valuable in the short run for helping people make it through this this pretty immediate shock. And and so on the other hand, yeah, no, go ahead. Finish up. Well, so so I mentioned that there's sort of the short run aspect and the long run aspect. In the longer run, I I do want to highlight that this is exactly the sort of reason that many of us are concerned about pretty high income inequality at the outset, even when the economy is looking pretty good. Because then that does mean that when something like this comes along, you are not very well placed to uh, to have people make it through a temporary time where they don't have a lot of income or or uh, feeling like they can't take sick leave or or whatever. So. As we get past this initial short run set of policies, I just want to want to sort of flag that this will be a powerful argument for doing things that reduce income inequality and that provide sort of a social safety net in the longer in the longer term so that our society is better placed to deal with these kinds of threats. We are joined by Ben Lockwood uh, of the Wharton School. So then, Ben, thinking about this, obviously now and putting a little bit of a historical spin on it going back to 2008 when we really saw the the last strong economic downturn this really wasn't even an issue at that point correct it wasn't on people's minds as much it wasn't and um and in some ways i think that this highlights why this is such an unusual crisis for for us to face uh this is this is really an outlier, really unusual relative to, you know, the other kinds of economic crises that we're used to thinking about historically, the Great Depression, the, the, dot, the dot-com crash, the, the Great Recession. These things that are in many people's memories uh, really started inside. They, they had to do with something inside the financial sector. There was some run-up in asset values that, uh, that then stopped, stopped paying or turned out to be not so valuable, and, and there was a big financial crash afterwards. And that kind of trickles through then to the real economy. It makes it harder for big debt loans, and, and, uh, and people be, uh, begin getting laid off. And in that sort of situation, it's really helpful for the government to try to restore confidence, to try to get people out and getting jobs and spending and boosting confidence and that sort of thing. Um, and that is actually not the sort of, of framing that is helpful to deal with this sort of unusual, uh, unusual economic crisis, where the biggest problem for the economy is actually coming from outside the financial system. It's this 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 virus that's that's causing problems for people going to work and and people uh, you know and their and their labor supply and their and the public health system, but it's not actually something that's fundamentally about uh, financial assets or or market values to begin with. Right. And what that means, the reason that that makes this sort of an unusual situation for government policy, is that the most important priority is actually not to restore confidence and to encourage people to go out and spend and to encourage businesses to hire lots of people to come to work. Instead, the first and the the primary thing that you need to deal with is actually solving that external factor that is causing the problems for the economy. So it makes it so that 
the biggest economic priority is actually the public health problem itself is, is you know, uh, widespread testing and, and treating people who are sick and getting people to, to not infect each other and, and so on. Um, so that's that's something that I think is, you know, we're in some sense kind of fighting the last war. If we're thinking of this in terms of uh, trying to get people out and 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 spend a lot, really, it's getting through getting through this issue and solving the public health crisis itself. That will be the best thing for the economy in the long run. You know, obviously, a lot that's being made uh, with this relief bill going through right now is uh, the payments that individuals will be getting directly. Uh, from the U.S. government to help them uh, get through this, uh, at least the in, uh, the initial part uh, of being at home, uh, you know, checks upwards of twelve hundred dollars, depending on what your what your income is. I, I believe it's upwards of of twenty five hundred dollars to three thousand. Uh, if you're a, a family, you obviously have credit for for kids in this as well. But it brings me back to something that was obviously talked about during the uh, the Democratic campaigns. Andrew Yang, obviously. Uh, talking about it a lot, is universal basic income and whether or not that's something that uh, should be considered here in the United States. It has been talked about. It has been de- debated about quite a bit. Where do you stand on that idea? Yeah, so I think that this is a really interesting idea. Um, and and I was actually quite glad to see policymakers considering these kinds of creative and pretty fast widespread options for this sort of, of temporary relief package. Um in part because you know when you have when you ha- when you have a sudden a sudden financial shock like this it's actually pretty hard to tell what specific needs different households are going to have some of them might uh, might have a gra- have their greatest need be being able to afford food uh, but that won't be the case for everyone someone else might have a greatest need that has to, that that involves making rent and so just giving kind of uh, ne- um, in kind targeted benefits like food stamps might actually not be the most useful way to support people. The nice thing about giving people cash is that then they can choose what thing they want to spend that on and whatever their greatest need is. We, we, we sort of uh, trust that they're going to, to funnel the cash to that, to that greatest need. Um, that relates to a higher level argument in support of universal basic incomes that Andrew Yang and others have made for a long time, which is just that there's something nice about cash in that for all sorts, in all sorts of circumstances, people know people may have a better sense of what their own needs are than the government does, sort of from a distance. And so that's a very nice thing about providing people with with just cash support rather than um, than in kind targeted support. There was one additional uh, particularly useful thing about cash in this specific circumstance, and that is that the some of the other kinds of financial support that you might offer, the other kinds of stimulus support that you might offer, like a, like a payroll reduct a payroll tax reduction, for example, which is something yeah. that was used in, uh, in, in 2008, uh, one of the shortcomings of those is that if someone stops working or if someone's not working to begin with, they don't actually qualify for that. So, so a, a cash benefit is very nice in that it can be extremely broad-based. Um, you can basically send it out to everybody regardless of their circumstance, and you know that, they're, that whether they were working or not, they're, they're getting this, and that will help them, help them make it through this. Um, whether this turns out to then be something that has more support for uh, in in like the longer term for something like a universal basic income, um, I, I'm not sure. I, I think that there are some arguments for for doing that sort of thing. I I often caution people that it doesn't make a ton of sense to talk about a universal basic income without simultaneously pairing it with 
the funding side of that. How do you think you're going to raise the revenues to fund that universal basic income? Because it can look very different depending on how you're going to do that that funding. Um, So so I think just uh, a a UBI on its own is kind of an underspecified policy. But in this context, I'm really glad to see this as part of the package that was just just passed. Are you hopeful that some of these ideas that, that are being put in play now because of some of the harsh economic times that that people are are in right now that that we can carry them over to you know once we get past the big hurdle uh, of the health side of this issue and and you get the economy going back uh, more on a on a on a full speed basis because i i've talked about it on this show already today and and i know it's a topic that's out there is that i think there's a concern that once you you kind of take care of the virus part of this, that the old patterns, the the old ways of doing things will return and, and you won't get kind of a transformative change. Yeah, that's a that's a really good question. Um, I mean, I, I again, I do want to stress that I think it's it's correct to focus in the short run, in the short term uh, all the priority on dealing with the virus itself. And so and and dealing and and kind of organizing economic policy just around helping people make it through that very rough patch. Um, so I, I do think it makes sense for policy to fundamentally be concerned with sort of short run uh, phenomena that are really focused on this particular crisis rather than trying to make large structural changes going forward at, at this point, just because sure. that tends to slow things down and, and, uh, and, and gum things up a bit more. Um, but at the same time, I do think when we return to making longer term economic policy changes uh, as a, you know, in, in the wake of this, um, it's, it's going to be really useful to be able to point to some of these policies, see which ones worked well. For example, the cash grants are something that I, that I think may want to be part of an ongoing kind of policy instrument that we use whether it's for kind of an ongoing uh, universal basic income that always happens or possibly something like uh, like like whenever a recession hits, there's just an automatic trigger that starts quickly sending out direct cash to people to deal with that uh, with that that short run crunch. Um, those kinds of things are things that I would like to see considered. And I'm hopeful that people kind of put a pin in the things that we are learning from this this process and the kinds of creative policies that we're passing at the moment and then thinking about how some of those mechanisms can be built into automatic things that kick in when we when we face some sort of crisis. Right. And, and that's a bigger discussion, as you kind of alluded to. And, and there's a version of it that we talked about earlier on the show on the health side of this is just thinking more long term about what we believe we need to have in place. Should there be that next, you know, next recession or next vi- virus outbreak, you know, something have that plan in place, be ready for it so that we don't have the lag time that we had during this process. Yes, I think that's exactly right. And one way to do that is through these sort of automatic stabilizer kinds of policies, especially if they're already in place and kick in automatically when something happens. Um, But again, I also want to highlight that one of the best ways to be prepared for this sort of thing is for people to already be in a strong financial situation uh, going into some sort of crisis without the need of any of any kind of government intervention. Um, And and so, again, I think that this just highlights why it's 
really helpful for all of society to think about the role of income inequality and how sort of the lowest uh, the the lowest earners among us are faring even in even in times of plenty because it turns out that everybody is more exposed to their fragility when a shock like this hits and so the more that we can implement you know long-term policies that provide strong social safety nets that in that uh, that that provide you know substantial um, redistribution and worker protection and and so on uh, to help with those kinds of uh, to, to help people in remain in a strong financial position going into these kinds of crises on their own that also can be a you know a really powerful thing to think about in the longer term but Ben I, I think there's also something that and I was just thinking about this a moment ago and, and it goes back to something we've talked with you about in the past that in the situation we're seeing right now with so many people working from home, you obviously have fewer and fewer people working in their offices, in many cases in big cities, and that is going to present a problem for a lot of cities right now in terms of the tax revenue they collect on an annual basis. Obviously, for a city like Philadelphia, you have so many people that are paying a percentage of their salary to a wage tax in the city of Philadelphia, well, those people are going to be getting that rebate back, which is obviously good for the people, but it's a negative for the city. And the concern is, okay, what are the cities going to do to try and make up that lost revenue? Yeah, this is a really good this is a really good point about the wage tax for Philadelphia specifically, and then more broadly, uh, we're going to see the ramifications of this at the state level across much of the country as uh, as sales tax revenues plummet just due to the due to the decline in spending during this time, you know, um, and and so I think one of the important things for the federal government to be thinking about, and this is this is part of the policy packages that are being discussed right now. Uh, is to provide a backstop, a funding backstop for the for states and localities whose revenues are crashing during this time because spending itself is going down. And that's actually, a, you know, in, in the short run, that's actually a pretty straightforward thing for the federal government to be able to do, um, since it's the the federal government can actually borrow at you know, effectively negative real interest rates right now. They can borrow extremely cheaply um, and pay back less in real terms 10 years from now than is being borrowed right now. So to whatever extent the federal government can provide that sort of support for things like Philly's wage tax and for also state-level sales taxes and so on, uh, so that these localities can continue providing their necessary services and helping people make it through this crisis. I think that's, that's an important thing to be thinking about. I also like, though, that you highlighted that in the longer run, there might actually be some sort of structural changes as a result of this. If we're starting yeah. to see, you know, a shift toward uh, more people working at home because this was just the push that a business needed to realize that this actually makes a lot of sense for them in the longer term or, or what have you. That may cause some longer term changes in which kinds of tax policies uh, or, or the balance of rates across different tax policies uh, are, are most effective for raising the revenue that we need. At this point, I think it's a little too early to tell what that's going to look like. And in any case, it's probably higher priority to deal with the, the public health crisis at the moment. Um, but I do think that that's something that's going to, to rear its head in the next you know, year to two years. Great having you with us today, Ben. Thank you for your insight, as always. Thanks a lot, Ben. Great talking to you. Thank you, Ben Lockwood from here at the Wharton School. To keep engaged with Wharton Business Daily and other Wharton School shows, visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.